Hi guys. For the past few weeks, one of the most popular movies on Netflix has been a documentary called Girl in the Picture. The film tells an unbelievable true crime story, one which Love Murder previously covered on our episode Franklin Delano Floyd and the Tragic Life of Sharon Marshall. Today, Andy and I are absolutely thrilled to welcome to the show Matt Birkbeck. Matt is the author of A Beautiful Child and the follow-up Finding Sharon, the books Girl in the Picture are based upon, as well as the executive producer of the film. In this interview, we discuss how he first got interested in the case and how he became much more than just a journalist covering a story. We're so appreciative of Matt taking the time to talk with us, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, everyone. We are here with author and investigative journalist Matt Birkbeck, who also has added executive producer of a major hit Netflix documentary to his roster of things that he does in his life. Matt wrote A Beautiful Child and Finding Sharon as well as some other books, but those are two that we know we've talked to you guys about. And he is the executive producer and featured on The Girl in the Picture on Netflix. And we are just so honored to have him here with us today. Hi, Matt. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Very good. Yeah, so we're going to jump right in because we have a ton of questions for you. So I think that to get started, we'd love to have an overview of how you got involved with Sharon's case. And we're going to call her Sharon because I know that that was the name that you used for so long and you can even touch on that and how that kind of morphed into not just a beautiful child, but then the follow-up Finding Sharon. First, I want to compliment you both on doing your homework because I was sent some questions yesterday and they were really good questions. So it showed that, you know, you did your stuff. So good for you. Sometimes I get, I get, I do these things and I did them last week, for instance, Netflix asked me to do a bunch of them and folks didn't have a clue what they were talking about. So (laughs) it's a pleasure to talk to two people who are, you know, from very familiar with the story. I found out about the story, just as I said in the film, it was a photograph. I had just come off my very first book on Robert Durst, who's the aired his huge fortune in New York and killed several people and probably killed a lot more. And I had met a private investigator in Texas when I was down there. Her name is Bobby Basha. And she started just sending me stuff from time to time. I said, hey, you got to take a look at this. Hey, you got to take a look at that. And then this, she sends me this email and this photograph. I open it up and it's the photo of her sitting in the lap. It said he had kidnapped her, raised her as his daughter, marries her and then kills her. And then it was just a couple little bits of information. That was it. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is horrendous. So I said, let me make a few phone calls. And I, I did. And the person I spoke to first was Joe Fitzpatrick, as I mentioned in the film. And, you know, Joe filled me in a little bit. And what really got me with that first conversation was that this was a case that had ended. So no one knew her identity and no one knew what happened to Michael. And it gnawed at him. It really bothered him. The case was dead. Law enforcement wasn't doing anything. That was because Floyd was already in prison for kidnapping. And he was just about to face trial for the murder of Cheryl Comesso. And so I wrote, this was over a few months. This was like during the summertime. I spoke to Fitzpatrick. I wrote to Floyd. I wrote to his attorney, I think it was. And I get a phone call after the trial, which was in the fall. 
and it was from Franklin Floyd. He had just been convicted of killing Shella Comesso. And we had a few conversations, and I said, can I come visit you? And he said, yeah. I said, okay. So I, I made plans to go visit him in February. I had enough to pitch a book. And so my editor at Penguin, I told her the basics of the story. I didn't know much. Frankly, I didn't know anything. So I kind of winged it. But she said, okay, fine. And then I was working for a newspaper at the time. And I had just come off this big investigation I did into mortgage fraud. And I thought I was pretty, I thought I was golden. And I went to my editors. I said, I, listen, I need a, I need a six-week book leave. I'm going to go write a book about a girl I don't even know. I just read about it. I have a clue what she's about. Much to my surprise, my editors at the time said no. So I quit. Yeah, they must be kicking themselves now, huh? Seriously. Well, <laughs> so I ended up boarding a plane to go from Pennsylvania down to St. Petersburg. He was still in the county prison there. And it was about this blizzard was about to hit in the Northeast. And I actually got the last flight out. I mean, it's not, I never thought we were going to get up. In, in the air. But we did. I landed. I talked to Floyd. And from Floyd, and, you know, you saw, a, you saw a little bit of the interview in the film. I spent four hours with him. Yes. And we heard a little bit about this, where he's kind of waxing poetic about his life with her and saying how much she loved him, which is just stomach curdling and bizarre. And definitely, we're going to be jumping around to the questions that I sent you. And one of those questions was about that experience and what it was like to be in the room with one of the most horrific murderers we've ever covered in our 106 episodes. Just the coldest, cruelest person that it it gives me chills just thinking about being in the same room as him. So I go in there and two deputies leave me in and he's got, he's sitting there, he's got handcuffs on. And he's got boxes of documents. And these are documents. He acted as his own attorney during the Cheryl Comesso trial. So he had access to all the discovery information, which included his files. And when I later told the FBI about that, they were furious. They were incensed. So what happens is, though, he says, I need my cuffs off so I can show him my files and go over with him. And they look at each other, the two guards, and they take the cuffs off. Now, he had just gotten convicted of the horrendous murder of Shell Comesso, right? I'm figuring he killed Sharon, and I'm already, and we, everyone believes he killed Michael. So that's three people. And so the guards then leave. So I, I was just, I was a little, and it was a very small room. I was a little taken back. I'm not, I'm not afraid to admit it, you know. But as the interview went on, you heard just snippets of it. He just, and everyone who's ever interviewed him said the same thing. Joe Fitzpatrick said it. The FBI guy said it. He starts talking. He doesn't stop. He just goes on and on and on and on and on. And, you know, you got to try and pick your moments where you can just go in. You know, ultimately I did. But what really, we were halfway in to the interview. And it was two hours later. And we're talking about Cheryl Comesso. And what was really disturbing was that he actually had the photographs he had taken of Cheryl as he was torturing her before he killed her. And these were just horrific photographs, just disgusting. And I actually had to get up and get out of the room and go get take, get some water. Just sit back for a minute. That's how disturbed I was. I was by it. And plus, he's trying to argue with me. There was a he got convicted on a thumbprint that was on her thigh, on the inside of her thigh. 
and he's arguing with me about his thumbprint and his awful photograph. And then finally, as in a psycho, oh, yeah, you know, these pictures are disgusting and whatnot. And I said, all right, listen, you know what? Give me a minute. I went out, got some air, came back in. I said, listen, I want to make copies of all your documents. You okay with that? He said, fine. I said, I need, I need to go to a Kinko's. I didn't know if there was a Kinko's. I said, I need to go to a Kinko's outside the prison. He goes, you're not leaving the prison with my documents. I said, fine. I got one of the guards, a sheriff. I said, do me a favor. I need this stuff. Can you think you can make copies for me? He said, sure. Just hand it out to me. I'm actually handing out files to the guard. And he, he copied every single thing. And it was a treasure trove of information. Frankly, it, was, it really added to the book because it told about Sharon's early life. It told about his life. So it was important in terms of getting information. And then I left him after four hours. And I don't know why he agreed to, to meet with me. He must have thought somewhere in his psychotic mind that I could help him. I don't know. You know, he kept saying to me, you're going to write the truth. And he kept changing stories. And you heard, her, you heard him in the, in the movie talk about how beautiful she was and how she loved him. But then what you don't hear is right after that, he'll just talk about, you know, she was a prostitute and she was a slut. And she was this. It was just, you know, very demented mind. I'm certain he's killed many more people. But it was the start. And then I went and I traveled for the next two, three months across the country and interviewed everyone that most of the people that were in the film. And by the time I got back in end of May, I had my story and on my book, but I had to figure out how am I going to write this story? I mean, it was so complex. And how am I going to write it to where readers are not going to just stick with it? But I wanted them to, you know, see what she was all about. Well, you did a beautiful job. And I can tell you that there's literally no way I could have written an episode about this case without your book and now books, because there is just so much to it. And there's so many layers of the onion and there's so many crimes that are happening like a in Russian nesting doll within crimes that you're finding out about like one after the other. And it's more horrific than the next. So to try to figure out a narrative arc in the middle of this depraved insanity is very hard. And you did an incredible job. But at the same time that you were telling what is a true crime story, you're actually telling a beautiful story about a girl who didn't give up having hope or heart or intelligence or kindness. And you're doing the hardest thing ever, which is essentially writing a story with no ending. It didn't have the closure until you were able to write your next book. And so I think that's even harder to do what you did. I think I was a little naive in that, thinking I could come up with the identity when the FBI tried for years, given all the resources the FBI has. <laughs> oh, those guys. You know, I'm thinking, you know, yeah. I'm thinking I could just parachute in, I could do a few interviews and boom, we got it. But I thought we were going to get it up until the end. I made a really good friend at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and his name was Jerry Nance. He's not in the film, and he couldn't be, but he should have been because he was just instrumental in helping me. He had facilitated DNA testing early on, even while I was writing the book, where we thought we might have had a couple of hits. And then he continued on. It was through Jerry that we found Megan, but I'll get into that in a little bit. But I was focused on Sharon. I was focused on telling her story, as you said, and as readers have said, and now viewers have said, she was just 
this remarkable young woman who somehow compartmentalized her life and somehow, and you could see the goodness in her. I mean, what was really amazing was the testimony of her friends and how she helped them. Jenny Fisher and, you know, Lynn Clemens and, you know, anyone that came into contact with her. She improved their lives. And think about that. She improved their lives while she's living in total horror. You know, that to me was the story. So I wanted to write a, a book about a girl and show her humanity, which to me was really important. Oh, yeah. And I think that's why this story, this person's life is affecting so many people and has done so well on Netflix because of the human spirit that's at the heart of it, that is Sharon. Speaking of Jenny, I was stunned during the documentary when she described that horrific and trigger warning for you guys at home rape scene that happened at the night of the sleepover. And I don't know if I like blocked it out or something, but I didn't remember from A Beautiful Child that account, was that a choice that you kept out? Was it something that Jenny revealed to you later? How, how Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I thought I knew a lot having read your book twice like and read everything about it. And that scene horrified me and I was stunned. So I didn't know about it either when the book came out. I had interviewed Jenny for hours when I was in Atlanta in 2002, was it 2000, 2003? And she had never told me that story. It wasn't until 2016, we were in New Orleans filming a program on this case. And she pulled me aside. She says, I have to tell you something. I said, what? And she tells me that story. And I was just blown away. And I was like, first thing I said to her is, why didn't you just, why didn't you tell me about that early on? Plus, we had spoken so many times over the years. She never told that to me. You know, during the search for Sharon's identity over, over all those years, she had never, ever, ever mentioned that story to me. But she pulled me aside and she related to me and, you know, she was going to be interviewed and she didn't know if she, if she should tell it. And I told her it was up to you. You know, it's up to your comfort level, how you feel about it. And she did. She didn't do it. She did do it with us when we. she came out. To, we did her interview in Oklahoma. And she came out and she told that story. And as you saw, I mean, I thought Jenny was great in the film. Uh, she was so compelling. Yes, she was so spot on. But that's just, it's a brutal story. And it's one I know, like, it, a lot of people, it affected them the same way that it affected you. It was just such a shocking moment in a film with so many shocking moments. Yeah, and then to have the courage and the strength and the fortitude to stand on the witness stand and be cross-examined by that man when he was acting as his own attorney, knowing now what she witnessed him doing firsthand is even more appalling, even greater on her, on what a type of person she is that she was able to do that. So there was a, obviously trying to tell the story in two books is tough. Trying to tell it in a 90 minute documentary is almost impossible, which I never thought we were going to be able to do. I thought we were going to do four episodes or something like that, like a mini series or a limited series. But it was, you know, we actually stretched it from 90 minutes to, I think, 104 minutes. And so there were, there were a lot of moments that aren't in the film, a lot of moments. But the key moments that are in the film, they just, they blow you away. And Jenny in the courtroom with him and confronting him, you know, and then she says to, you know, I think she said, you know, you were, you were her daddy. You were her father. 
I mean, you know, that was just so emotional and so compelling and to watch her do that and to relay the story so many years. Every one of these people that, that appeared in the film, even though these events took place a long time ago, they were all willing to, some of them to travel far distances and to sit down and to relive it, to relive these moments. There was one person that couldn't do it, and that was Michael's father, biological father. He just, and I respected that. We all respected that. He just put it in his past. But, you know, everyone wanted to come forward and they wanted to tell their story. And I think that's, again, a testament to Sharon. I was thinking about that even with how I think you opened or discussed in A Beautiful Child how her coworkers at a strip club all cared about her so much to be finding out what happened to her and getting her the gravestone when she was Tanya Hughes still, or they knew her as Tanya Hughes and more than even just her high school friends that to continue, especially in like a business like that in like, we worked in restaurants and stuff. So we know something similar. Those can be very um, transient types of jobs and to have made such an impression on the people around her that they rallied so hard around her. And then years later, coworkers are discussing her the way they are really does, again, highlight her spirit and who she was. Yeah, it was like that with all of them. And as you said, even Heather and Heather had a difficult life at that club. And, you know, to see her and how she talked about her years later, again, it was just a testament to Sharon. It was a testament to the human spirits. It was a testament to the goodness in her. And I think that's what everyone has just been so drawn to all over the world. When the film came out July the 6th, I got a call the following morning and it was, hey, guess what? We're the number one film in the U.S. And I was like, oh, my God. And then that night we got an email from Netflix and it said, congratulations, you're the number one movie in the world. Oh, wow. This was in this was within 24 hours. We were just all blown away. Unbelievable. It was just remarkable. And it's still there. It's still the number one movie in the world. And it's just, it's all about Sharon. I mean, it's a twisted, sadistic, sordid story, but it's really all about her. And, you know, thank God we're able to find her identity and ultimately change her name to the rightful name on her uh, headstone. Yes, and we definitely need to get into that and into Sharon Suzanne's family. I have one last question about some other heroes in this story. Uh, the FBI agents, how did they do it? How did they get those shocking confessions out of him? Do you think it was like their training, their personalities, their ability, or was he ready to talk finally? What was it? So they were great. I went to go visit them in 2016, I went to Oklahoma. It took me months to get permission to even talk to them. That's how the FBI is sometimes. I finally go out there and I'm talking to I'm talking to them, Scott Love and Nate Burr. And Scott relays to me the call he got from Ashley Rodriguez from the National Center. She basically took over for Jerry Nance, sort of. She kind of took his spot in the cold case unit. Uh, and she's great. So you have to remember, these people handle thousands of cases a year hundreds of thousands of cases a year, missing children, violence against women, and, you know, Ashley getting Harris's file on Sharon Marshall. I don't know what this is. And then one of her colleagues gives her the book, and she reads the book. Okay. Now she knows who she is, and she's drawn to her, just like we're all drawn to the film. 
she calls Scott Lobb out and after they have a series of meetings, but then she ultimately calls Scott Lobb and he has no idea what she's talking about. He goes into the FBI vault in Oklahoma City, pulls out the files and the book is in their files. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this, too. How mind blowing is this to you that the FBI is using your work, your book to facilitate these confessions, to understand what this case is about? I mean, that must be a very high honor. It's monumental. Well, I mean, it was, but it was it was also no. But what was also it was really about Sharon. They fell in love with Sharon, just like we all did. So you think of the book as being Sharon. Okay, it's their it's their introduction to her into this terrible story, and so he's trying to figure out how am I going to interview Franklin Floyd, and he brings in Nate Fur, who's the interrogation expert in Oklahoma City, and it's on a Friday, and this was a great scene. We couldn't get into the film. I wish we could have, but Nate has no idea what he's talking about, and then Scott just goes here. He gives him the book. He goes, go read this over the weekend. Nate comes back that Monday morning, drops the book on the desk, and says, I'm in, and then together. They go out over the next three, four months. They meet with Joe Fitzpatrick. He gives them some background. They were going over every document, every file. They went over through YouTube videos. They watched them. They watched Floyd. They wanted to see what he was like. And they were trying to come up with a strategy to interview him because there really is a strategy that you have to follow when you're dealing with sadistic killers like Franklin Floyd. And so when they went in there, you know, for the sake of the film, I write about this in Finding Sharon, but for the sake of the film, we kind of just, we made the decision to switch around the, what we just, what was discovered first. So they actually discovered the identity first, and then they went back and found out about Michael second. In the film, it's Michael first, and it's Sharon, and it's Sharon second, which, you know, it's not a big deal. But they got him to talk, and I think for Floyd, and you heard them talking about his resistance to them, you know, the FBI agents. And then he kept, then he yapped with them like he yapped with me and everybody else, you know, 45, 50 minutes. Didn't he talk some shit on you too to them? Yeah. Yeah, he was, yeah. You know, he, he hated me. I went back to see him after I wrote the book. I went back to see him in 2004 and he was upset with me. Thank God. I, he was, now he was transferred to the, to death row in Florida, the Union Correctional Facility. And this time there was glass between us. And he came out and to see me, he saw me. He was, I'm not going to repeat what he said. I can't. But I was with him for two hours and that was another brutal interview. But when he saw the FBI agents, he was cursing about Fitzpatrick. He was cursing about me and the book. He was cursing about anyone that he thinks wronged him in his life. And somehow they got through all of that. And, you know, they played good cop, bad cop. They questioned him and they got him to admit Sharon's true identity fairly quickly. I think he thought, I don't know what's going on in Floyd's mind, but the only explanation I could have is he thinks maybe if he helps them, they'll get him off of death row because he's not going to be executed. There was some issue that happened in Florida with death row prisoners and they're not executing them now. I mean, he could have thought that maybe he was going to get moved to another prison or he hoped if he cooperated, he'd get better treatment. I don't know. But they got that first and then they went back a few months later and the, the Michael confession to me, it was just so dramatic, the way that they just beat up on him and, you know, kept pushing him and pushing him. And Nate Fur saying, come on, Floyd, come on. You know, you want to say it. Scott Lobb is banging on the table. You know, I read about this in Finding Sharon. And finally, Floyd was facing the wall and he was crying and he was pleading for help from God. And then he just turns around. He's not crying. He's got a straight face and he admits he shot him twice in the head. And it was just such a 
dramatic but horrific scene. And you got to give Scott and Nate just a tremendous amount of credit for doing what they did. Yeah, it got to the point where we thought it was next to impossible that Floyd would ever give that up. But they did it. We're all thankful to them for that. Truly some incredible work there. For sure. And that moment was something we had a watch party with some of our patrons and we watched this together and we all chatted about it. And afterwards, they had some questions. And, and you know, there's a lot of questions about Suzanne's family and particularly her mother. So we're going to jump into that next. But there were questions about that moment and everyone just their hearts sinking when they discovered that Michael was definitely deceased, even though we all suspected that. And what went wrong there? Was he feeling the heat from the police, this and that? And I just thought that part of Sharon's survival with him was her sweetness, with her kindness, with her empathy, that she could not only like help and connect with everyone else that you interviewed, but she probably had a way of dealing with him that was patient and kind despite everything he was doing to her and he expected Michael to be the next Sharon to be his next generation of that and Michael was now stronger he had a voice he had been loved by a family and he said no he wanted to go back to his family and I think that why he was dispatched so quickly and why, you know, I would imagine that there's other people who he tried to hurt in the same way that he ended up killing, like you said, that we don't even know about is because he put up a fight in a different way that maybe Sharon did not or could not and that her survival and instincts were to be kind. Her ability to survive, she developed early on with him. And it was all about pleasing him, trying to keep him happy. She also knew how dangerous he was, and she was terrified of him. And I'm sure she knew about the violence that was part of his life. There's no doubt. I have no doubt in my mind he's killed other people. Do you think when they moved from place to place, it was because of another murder that we don't know about? Yeah, that's one of the theories. I mean, I'm getting... there. Were, in doing the research, we did some additional research for the film and for the podcast and that accompanies the film. And we found several other women, missing women, in locations where he was at, where he lived. So that's something that we're going to continue to take a look at moving forward. And the FBI said the same thing. Joe Fitzpatrick said the same thing. He's killed before. And he's killed probably in every city that he's gone to. She learned to live with him. She learned how to keep him peaceful. She learned how to have some some sort of a normal relationship. She also, I mean, when she was in high school, which were the best years of her life, where she really shined, the teachers there, and I had interviewed several of them, you know, they knew he was kind of quirky. They had no idea, obviously, what was going on. They had guilt-ridden to this day. But given how well she was doing, particularly in school, they had no reason to think that anything was wrong, much less what was really going on. I mean, guys, if you haven't, obviously check out the film, read the books, but she got a full scholarship for aeronautical engineering. That's insane. To Georgia Tech. It was an ROTC scholarship. She was in the ROTC. She would march. I guess they call them cadets. I know they used to wear, they wore the uniforms and everything. It was the Air Force ROTC. 
And, you know, he would watch and he'd be the proud beaming father. And no one thought, you know, no one thought anything. The only time things got really weird is when he accompanied her on dates. There's a scene in the book I wrote about where she went on a date as a junior with her boyfriend then, and he's there with her. So there's a lot of weirdness going on. The Disneyland one too, right? Yeah, that was later with Mario, another boy she had met early on. So no one had a clue or could even think that something that was just so despicable was going on. And he was letting her do those things because it was feeding his own narcissism because she was so successful that it was... It wasn't for her. He wasn't letting her have something. It was because it was making him look good. Right, exactly. But she then, when she got pregnant in high school, that somehow twisted something in his brain because then it became really sordid. He forced her to work in. She had been working in strip clubs before that, but now she was working for a living. By the time they got to Tulsa, it was seven days a week. She was supporting him. And Michael was going to be her replacement. You know, He had been abusing her all of her life. And now he was setting up Michael to replace her and he would raise him. And she, one thing I don't think we got across the way I think I would have liked it, but I mean, we only had so much time to work with, but she died trying to save Michael. She was going to leave him. She was, I wrote about it in the book and a beautiful child. She was going to leave him. She planned, she had a boyfriend in Oklahoma that made plans for her to leave. She knew if he found out he'd kill her. And as it was, he found out. And that's when they went to Oklahoma City. And that's when she died. I think we brought that up in our episode, as I recall, Andy, that she died trying to save herself and Michael, but mostly Michael, because she wasn't going to have him go through what she went through. Well, I think that on this very sad note is time to switch into talking about Megan. Let's talk a little bit about the Megan connection as a way to get into Suzanne's family, which is Matt and the authorities discovered that her real name was Suzanne Savakis. And Megan is just such a light. And, you know, she has a child named Michael for her brother, which is just so wonderful. And the end, when you guys did the unveiling and everything that went along with that. Can you tell us a little bit about, and I know I'm going a little out of order because I'm kind of getting to the heartwarming stuff in the middle because I want to go back to it. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences with Megan and her mother, who's lovely, and the feeling you got at that moment when you got to put her correct name on the gravestone? All right. So I'll start with the two, with the headstone. I had wanted to, when I went there in 2003, and it had the name Tanya there. You know, I had just sat down with Karen Parsley, who's in the film, and one of her friends who was another dancer, and had interviewed them. And then we went to the cemetery, and I saw the name. And I know the genesis of that name. It came from a tombstone. It was just, it was horrible. I just said, you know, if we ever find her identity, you got to just change that tombstone. And so after we found her identity, and I saw them in 2016 in New Orleans, I said to Megan, I said, listen, I said, I'd like to do that. I'd like to change the, the headstone you want to be involved in that? And she said, absolutely. And since she was the daughter, I said, great, you can lead it in terms of, you know, what's going to, I'll set it up and I'll make the arrangements with the, you know, it took, a, it took a couple of months to make arrangements to change it with this little cemetery in Tulsa. I don't know why. It got to the point where the U.S. attorneys that were in the in the film, Mark Yancey and Nate Camiga, they were going to step in. Well, because it was, the club owner was on the 
deed for yeah. was found a deed. Yeah, and he yeah. died, and then his daughter. I had to go through the daughter, and then I had to finally convince them, and then I had to convince the guy at the cemetery what we were doing. Oh my but God. the guy, the the guy who really made this very memorable event was Keith Millis, who was the guy you've seen who gave the eulogy. He's the guy standing in the background, the older, bigger guy in yellow. He's the former chaplain for the Broken Arrow Police Department. So this is Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, right outside of Tulsa. And he's working at, when I called the headstone, for looking for a headstone, he picked up the phone. He was working there. I had no idea where he was. So I told him what I was looking to do. And then he said, oh, that sounds, that sounds interesting. He said, did you send me a copy of the book? And I said, sure. So I sent him a copy of the book. And then we spoke like a week later. And he said, Matt, if you, would, if you wouldn't mind, it would be my honor if I could deliver the eulogy. And I said, great, because he had done it his whole career. Because I had no idea what this was going to be, because we were just inviting people, you know, who were part of the story and who from all over the country. You know, people came from Florida, from Seattle, and we all centered in Oklahoma. And he delivered a beautiful eulogy. And it turned out to be just a really incredible moment to do that. But getting to Megan and having Megan there meant everything. I first met her. Now, actually, I met her over the phone in 2005, I think it was, when I got that email about, would the DNA of Sharon's daughter help you? And this is right after the book came out, A Beautiful Child. And when the book came out, we had a web page set up. You know, we didn't find her identity when the book came out. And the hope was people would read it and we'd start getting some tips. And that's what happened. And tips were coming into the website. The really good ones based on when they disappeared, where they lived, what they looked like. We gave to Jerry Nance at the National Center and he did DNA testing. And of course, they came back negative. But then I got that email and I ended up talking with Mary. And the, but what Mary insisted on was that, you know, we have to keep Megan's identity and location a secret. She didn't want anybody finding her. Floyd was still alive. He's still alive now. But Floyd was in prison. She didn't want, you know, she was scared for Megan. And so from that point, so then from 2005, and then we sent Megan's DNA in 2005, 2006 for testing. And we compared it. There were two vials of blood in Oklahoma City from Sharon from when she died. And they were still there. Everyone thought the blood had degraded and was useless. So Jerry Nance got on board. We took Megan's blood, compared it against the blood that everyone said was Sharon's, and it was a match. And then we were like, wow. So now we had her blood in CODIS. And now the hope was, was that someday, some point in time, we'd, be, we'd get a match. And obviously years go by. But Megan, I watched Megan grow up from high school to college in terms of talking, because we would talk every year. We would talk two or three times a year. And with Mary, you know, how are things going? Any luck? You know, any leads? I mean, this wasn't something I worked on every single day. It was like we had the website set up. We'd hope to get tips. When we got a tip, I talked to Joe Fitzpatrick. I talked to the other U.S. attorneys. Everyone was interested in trying to find her identity. But Megan is just, she's an angel. She really is. And you saw her in the film. And what was remarkable is when people first see her, they how much she looks like her biological mother. And her baby pictures looked so much like Michael, too. Yeah. This is her family. And this is something that she's had to come to terms with. It's such a, you know, she read the book, or as much of the book, the first book, as she could. You know, and she even says that in the film. And then she read the second book afterwards. And this was after we did the headstone ceremony. 
and then she learned even more. And she's just had a lot to deal with in terms of trying to put all these pieces together and how it's basically she's going to take it and move forward with it. It's something that she's still grappling with right now. And how she wants to help people. I mean, that was really moving in the documentary about how her story, how she was just trying to think of how it could help others. I fell in love with Mary in Finding Sharon as well. Her mom, oh my God. The way that she handled everything and she seems wonderful. She's great. She's a wonderful woman. She makes a, a seafood gumbo. Is that what it is? With all the fish in it and whatever. So she fed us all. You know, we were on location in New Orleans and she fed us all. She came in, she made it, you know. She's great. She's positive. That was another thing about this story. It was like, you liked everybody, you know, with the exception of Floyd and then some of his cronies, like David Dial. But you liked everybody. And then I've covered law enforcement for years. I used to cover federal courts. And you never see police work like they did in this story. The way that they just cooperated with each other between Joe Fitzpatrick, the U.S. attorneys in Oklahoma. And then you get the police in Florida when they get involved. I mean, it was just all seamless. And it was all because they all bought into this to Sharon. And uh, that to me was really great to see watching law enforcement all work together. Yes, I imagine in that line of work, people become rather desensitized or jaded or cynical to have a human being in a case that just broke everybody's hearts wide open must be rare. Very rare. I mean, these are these are really tough guys. And you're right. They're desensitized because they this is their careers. This is what they do. So to see Sharon penetrate those steel exteriors and get them to go above and beyond, it's remarkable. Truly. So we were talking about Mary, who is such a phenomenal mother and was protective and so loving and, and protective of Megan insofar as saying, I don't want anyone to know who, what her real name is, where she is. Now we're going to move on to another mother, another mother who maybe wasn't quite so protective of her daughter. And I'm sure that this has to be the number one topic many people are asking you about. It was definitely something that our listeners all had questions about both Sandra and Cliff, about both of Suzanne's parents and their culpability in this. Now, having read Finding Sharon, when Sandra, Suzanne's mother, says that, like, it was basically implied in the documentary that there was a horrific accident, she became disabled, she was unable to take care of her children, the state took away her children, and that was the situation. And though in even in the film, she doesn't really give a, a reason why she didn't follow up later on, that was what she said. And I, having read Finding Sharon, was like, wait a minute. Excuse me, this sounds like revisionist history here. So Matt, would you like to, and you can be as polite as you want to be about the situation, because I know this is something that a lot of people have strong feelings about. Tell us what you know to be true and your experiences working with Sandra, and also if you want to get into it as well, Cliff. So your reaction was exactly my argument during the filming regarding Sandra, in that we need to tell the story that was in Finding Sharon which is just no holds bar and boom, just get it out there. And so that's the journalist in me wanting to get that out there where, you know, Sky was more of the opinion of let her tell her story. And even though we know it's BS, people will see it for it. And, 
you know, and then we added Heather and we added Mary, you know, Mary was, was in there too. It was probably the biggest disagreement that Sky and I had in terms of the film. And, you know, and anyone who's part of the film knows in my notes, you know, with every edit, we always give notes and whatnot. And like my notes with Sandy were the same, you know, no, we can't, we got to tell the story. We have to. Because when you read the book, you're going to go, why didn't you do that in the film? That said, okay, I understand Sky's motivation and watching the film now, I, I'll agree with it. You know, she's a filmmaker. I'm a journalist. You know, this was my first, you know, I worked on a film before off another book I wrote. This is the first time I was actually involved in one and putting it together. And, you know, being a documentarian as opposed to being a journalist is sometimes two different things. And at least that's what's told to me. I'm not sure if I agree with it all the time. Maybe it's more interesting to watch somebody's lies to themselves, to an audience. Right. But Sky wanted to let her tell her story. And she did. And then she brought Heather in and Heather, Heather basically pushed back. So when you came away from watching that, you're going, man, something is up with this mother. I don't know why, but the story of meeting him in a church and a tornado. And I mean, I remember when we did the interview in Virginia and she talks about a tornado hitting. I'm like, what tornado? The story of Sandy is not a good one. We interviewed some family members that didn't make it into the doc. And she basically at the time was living in squalor. You know, her family had told me that she was a prostitute. And Floyd even said this, whether you believe him or not, that he met her at a bus stop and that she was working as a prostitute. Kids were taken away. I interviewed one of the other daughters, Allison, for finding Sharon. We Unfortunately, we couldn't get her for the documentary. She's in a bad way living on the West Coast somewhere. So we couldn't get her story in there. But according to Allison, who was very young at the time, she's only about four years old, they were living in squalor. The state took the kids away. She meets Floyd. You know, Floyd sees three, he has about three little daughters and goes, oh my God, you know, for him, for a guy like him, he hit the trifecta. And I'm not trying to be funny. I mean, he, he's a pedophile. It's awful. And she gets the kids back and then they leave. But there was another child. There was a and little that's boy. Philip. That's Philip named Stevie. And I'll get him. I'll tell his story in a second. Okay. Because his story is great. Well, it's horrible, but great. And so Cliff, now I called Sandy after Joe Fitzpatrick told me about finding Suzanne's identity. That week, I reached out. I spoke to, I found Sandy. I spoke to her. I, it was like talking to someone who may have lost a cat and didn't care. There was no emotion in her voice, absolutely nothing. I know that Mary tried to connect Megan with her. And then as Mary says in the film, she pulled back. She didn't really care. Cliff, on the other hand, I emailed Cliff that week, and Cliff emails me back and says, don't ever email me again. I'm not, I'm not interested in talking. I'm just paraphrasing. I'm not interested in talking. Don't ever reach out to me again. And I'm like, okay. I let it go. Two and a half years later, two months before we do it, we're changing the headstone. I get an email around midnight. My phone goes off, paying. I never leave it on. I left it on for some reason. And it's an email from Cliff. And Cliff says he apologizes for his last email. He says he's devastated. He said he read the book. Subsequently, he went to for therapy. He went to go see his local minister, and he's a wreck. You could feel for him. You could see he's whatever mistakes he may have made, he may have made as a youth, and he describes them. He's paid for them and then some, and he says it in this note. And the notes in Finding Sharon. 
the email he writes to me. And I just said to him, listen, Cliff, we're changing the headstone in a couple of months. Do you want to come? And he said, yes. And he came and you saw his pictures. So there are two different stories there. One, someone that was seeking some kind of absolution and forgiveness for what had happened to his daughter. And then a mother who just, in my mind, just completely lied through our interview for the program. You know, I was in the back and when we're done and when the interview was over, you know, she had said she never spoke to me before when she was being interviewed. And so, you know, Sky says, asked me to come out. So I came out. I said hello to her. And as we're talking, I said, you remember back in 2014 when I called you? She goes, oh, yeah, I remember. We had a good conversation. And I'm like, you just told everyone 20 minutes ago you didn't talk to me. Oh, you never spoke to me before. God. So that's what she was about. And also for all of you guys at home or in the car or at the gym or wherever you're listening to this, it was even, I mean, you have to get Finding Sharon and just read it because I don't remember whether it was proven or implied that she also tried to sell her other daughters. Right, Matt? After Floyd takes Suzanne, now she she went to jail and was supposedly over cashing a $1.50 check that she bought diapers for. The other story was that she got picked up for prostitution. Floyd always maintains it. Even when I interviewed him in 2003, he didn't say her name, but he did say she was from Michigan and that she was a prostitute. He did give me that much. When he takes off with Suzanne and she gets out of jail, Sandra gets out of jail. When I interviewed Allison, Allison said that she took the other two girls up to Oklahoma to truck stops and tried to sell them. And when she couldn't sell them, she went back to North Carolina and then they lived there or they traveled through the country and they ended up back in North Carolina. So I already had my opinion formulated of, of Sandra on what she was and who she was. I guess the issue was also is that if we're going to really go hard and tell the story about Sandra, are we going to go equally as hard on Cliff? I mean, he's somewhat culpable here, isn't he? I mean, that was also part of the ongoing conversation about what to do with Sandy and Cliff. And at, at the end of the day, it was really, let them just tell their stories. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it was the right move. I think so too. Hopefully people who are very interested in finding out more of the truth will pick up your books and get the requisite background and real story. Because I do know there was some comments in our discussion group about like, why are we going so hard on the mother and not the father? Is this some sort of like sexist thing where guys don't have any responsibility towards their children, but mothers do after a breakup? And I was like, no, 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 no. That is not what this is about. It's like you said, Cliff has atoned for it. He's connected with Megan. It sounds like he's done a lot of self-work. And if you also read your book, you see that... The circumstances around him going to Vietnam and him trying to keep the marriage together and the relationship together and then, you know, experiencing what he experienced. And he seemed completely shell-shocked, to be honest. Yeah, he was. You know, and she had gone off with, with – she was seeing another man while he's in Vietnam and then she goes and sees another man. I mean, she's got six or seven kids now, I think. So but the thing with Cliff and I think the greatest for me – one of the greatest parts of the story is his connection with Megan. So we just, Megan got married in November and we went to the wedding and Cliff was there. He flew in from Seattle and with his wife. And so seeing their relationship, they didn't just meet and parted. They actually met and it grew. 
and it continues to grow. And to me, that was just, that was just great. That was a great part of the story. Do you think that that is like a part of your legacy now that helping to connect those people? There's two parts to the story for me. One, I'm a journalist and journalists typically don't get involved in stories. I happened to because I wrote a book that didn't have an ending and people were screaming at me, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so, but I really wanted to find her identity. So I stayed with it. And then the other part is just the other things that happened, you know, in terms of when we found her identity and going back out and doing more reporting and then getting everybody together for the headstone ceremony. You know, we all had a lunch after that. It was great. Everyone was just hanging out and talking and it was just, it turned out to be just, a really beautiful afternoon and it was probably one of my best days as a journalist so i would probably never i can't say never i don't think i'd ever get as involved with the story as i did with this one and it was good reason to get involved with this one but i mean as far as me thinking about a legacy that i mean other people probably figured out one after me it's not something i i really actually think about i'm always thinking about you know i got another project in my next book and i'm still in touch with everyone so i'm not you know I talked with Megan last week. I spoke with Joe Fitzpatrick yesterday. So it's still ongoing. So it's not really a thing where I'm thinking about a legacy or anything like that. I think more like maybe I worded it wrong. I think it's just maybe not enough people have told you or maybe they have. But like the the good that came out of this horrific story based on, you know, your not giving up and continuing on and doing book two and all of the many, many thousands and thousands of hours you've spent have resulted in, you know, a grandfather having a granddaughter and a great grandson and a family that's been brought together by a tragedy. So I think as a journalist, I'm sure you don't want to say, yeah, sure, that's me. <laughs> but I want to thank you. And I want to thank you for uh, like helping me to find anything about Sharon. And, you know, speaking of your next project and what you're working on, you finished the audible version of finding Sharon with the story goes on. And I know that there was that hint about Sharon slash Suzanne's brother, Philip slash Stevie. Are you still actively involved in this story? Are you still working on it? Are you going to put out another book? Is there a follow-up to the Netflix documentary? What is next for you and us? Because we got to know. So, all right. So there are two things here that I have to, that we have to say, we have to talk about one, because people are pummeling me with this question. Floyd is not the biological father of any of Sharon's children. Not the first one that was adopted in Texas, not Michael. That's that's the boy I mentioned earlier from Arizona who didn't want, who just didn't want to participate. And for good reason. And he's not Megan's father. So your listeners, if any of them are questioning it, because I've been getting a ton of, of mail and messages about that, Floyd's not a biological father. Do you think he was unable to have children? Was he infertile? I don't know. I can't answer that question. He had sex. You know, he had sex with Shelly Camesso. He had sex with Sandra. So, you know, he had sex with Sharon. So I don't know. I can't answer that. Uh, what I can answer is we did find Steve. And so I got an email. This is how this always works with me with this story. Uh, well, actually, it was a Facebook message, and it said something to the effect that, you know, my father just died last week, and I learned that, I learned this whole story, and can you please help me? And the story was about his mother giving him up when he was a baby, and his name is Steve, so his name is Steve, and it's Steve Patterson. 
So I spoke with Steve and he told me that the story he was told was that Sandra, around the time when she met Floyd, had given birth to an infant boy. And at the same time, she had met a woman in a hospital who had just had a miscarriage. Like, I think it was like she has had multiple miscarriages and couldn't have children. She has this boy, takes him home. She's got custody of the other three girls. She meets Floyd. They're now leaving North Carolina. Sandra shows up at the front door of this woman that she had met in the hospital and says, here, you want a little baby? Here you go. He gives a, a baby boy. That was Philip. That was the little baby. Now, Allison remembered him. And I wrote about that in Finding Sharon. She remembered that there was a baby. She wasn't quite sure, but she thought his name was Philip. And that's what they called him at first. His name was Philip. Steve was raised by this woman and her husband. I met him last year when we were filming. And he's just a great guy. And he actually has now connected with... So Sandy has a brother, Jim Chipman. Sandy's maiden name is Chipman. She has a brother named Jim Chipman, who's not in the dock, but we'd spend time with him. And he filled us in on Sandy's life too. So he connected with Jim Chipman, his uncle. And he also connected with Jim's father, Chip Chipman in Florida, who's 92 and is the grandfather. And he connected with Megan. So he's... He went to go visit with the Chipmans in Florida last year, and he's been in communication with Megan, and I'm sure at some point in time they're going to get together and say hello. But he was – that's the story of baby Stevie. The FBI guys didn't believe there was a baby Stevie. They thought it was uh, – you know, I interviewed him in 2016. I said, what do you think? What do you think of this story? The little baby. Nah, we don't believe it. But to Scott Lobb's credit, the one who got the confession, one of the FBI agents who got the confession out of Floyd – I had reached out to him after Steve Patterson reached out to me, and I said, hey, we think this guy says he's the baby Philip, Stevie, whatever. Can we do a DNA test? He said, yeah, I'll set it up. And he did. And it took almost a year to get the result back. But then Steve called me and said, it's a match. And I was like, wow. And that was just a year, what, two years ago, a year and a half, two years ago, the end of 2019, like three, almost three years ago. So, yeah, so it's just like another miraculous occurrence that happened in the story. And the fact that he had a good life, I mean, her giving him away had to be the best thing that ever happened to him. Saved his life. Oh, my God. And he knows it, too. I think he reached out to her. I'm not sure. And I don't think it went well. Or maybe he didn't. I'm just trying to remember. There's so many different parts to the story. But, again, just like Megan, they've got these pasts that they're trying to reconcile. And what I told Steve and what I, you know, what I told Megan, and I'm not a counselor or anything by any stretch of the imagination. I just said, listen, you both have great lives right now. So just move forward. Learn what you can about your past and what happened, but just be grateful where you are right now and enjoy your lives. And that's what I think they're both doing. I think that's great advice for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> for everyone all of the time, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, Matt. So what's next? What's next for you? So I have a new book coming out next year. It's going to be announced next week. So I can't give you the exclusive. Ah, That's why you were skirting around it. You didn't say anything. <laughs> Gosh darn it. All I can tell you is that it is a book regarding one of the most powerful figures in organized crime in the U.S. And it spans 30, 40 years. And it's an incredible story. It's not your average mob story. There's some very, very interesting people. Well, hopefully we'll have you back sometime to talk about that in the future. Also, we have to do a Durst episode, Andy, and use Matt's book for that as our primary source. 
Uh, actually, there's something else I'm working on in regard to Durst. So we'll hold off until that actually happens. And then I'll give you guys a heads up and then we can come back and talk about Durst because there's a, there is a lot to talk about. Oh, so much. He loves talking. <laughs> no, there's more. There's, there's a lot more. <laughs> I can tell you that. There's a lot more than we even know. So All of these maniacs just love hearing themselves talk to the point of detriment. It's like, good on them. Just keep talking. If I was a psychiatrist, I'd have a field day yeah. with these guys, <laughs> right? It would have kept me in business. Well, I, apparently, they like talking to you, too. So we thank you for all of the work you've done and sitting in front of psychopaths for hours on end in rooms where they're not handcuffed so that we can bring these stories to our listeners. We really appreciate it, Matt. Truly inspiring. I appreciate it. (laughs) And if there are any budding podcast people out there, I suggest they do what you two guys did and do your homework because you guys knew what you were talking about. And I enjoyed this. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. Have have a great day. Bye. 